Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. It's a, an extraordinary part of being human that we, besides being able to take in experience through the five sense doors, <clears throat> five physical sense doors, we have this mind that wants to make sense of experience, that can create, that can imagine, that can remember. That can worry or love. <clears throat> Just an amazing aspect of human consciousness that we are endowed with. <clears throat> and that's its function. It thinks, it creates, it makes sense of the world. And somehow all of these thoughts keep on happening all by themselves you don't make them happen and you can't really stop them from happening. You might try. Maybe there's moments where you're so connected to the present or maybe there's a gap for an instant or perhaps even more than an instant, a few instances, but it keeps on happening. When you think about it, how many thoughts do you think you've had today? Don't think too much about it, but uh, uh, it just keeps on happening. And the extraordinary thing is that we, most of the time, or much of the time, believe whatever thought is coming through as being our current reality. Even if we know, oh, I'm just manufacturing it, and oh, I'm just imagining, 
um, it still affects us, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing? You can have 20,000 thoughts in the day or more and so many of them stick and affect us. I just find that fascinating. And when they affect us, we get swept up in all kinds of ideas and reactions and most of the time miss out on the reality that's right here, right now. And it takes, it takes some work as you are doing. It takes the kind of work that you're doing to pierce through that waterfall of thoughts to actually notice, oh, life is happening right now. Oh, gee, this might be worth my attention. When you think of people going through their day around the world, how many moments are they truly mindful as opposed to how many moments are they lost in their own thought? Isn't that amazing? The present moment is here all the time saying, hey, check it out. But somehow we have something better to do, like being lost in our greed, hatred, delusion, fantasies, past, future. And the Buddha, of course, recognized this as a a particularly uh, central predicament um, for which he created this amazingly perceptive, brilliant way to cut through and wake up to what's right here. And he recognized how easy it is to get caught in thought. This is from one discourse, the Honeyball Sutta, Majjhima number 18. He says, dependent, this is, he goes through all five sense doors. I'll just do one. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact, that is, the eye form outside and the consciousness that perceives. And when they come together, it's contact. With contact as a condition, there is feeling, that Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What one feels, that one perceives. There is perception. Oh, that's a, a pretty bell or whatever it is. These going through the the skandhas. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation 
beset a person with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. Very simple. You have contact, you see a form, there's a perception, then there's a thought about it, and then quite often there is proliferation of thought, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with the, the wonderful term papancha. <clears throat> it's really what's onomatopoeic. It sounds like it, like it is. Papancha, you get a little punch just as the thoughts mushroom and into more thoughts. That continual creating of worlds from one thought. <clears throat> and it's, it's, uh, it's quite extraordinary to just, I'm sure you've probably done this at times, kind of, you don't know how you got into, you know, junior high prom or whatever, but something triggered it and there it is, you're back there with either the love of your life or the, the rejection of your life or whatever it is. It was a, uh, I love a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I came across a few years ago. It's, its first frame is um, <clears throat> Calvin saying, here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. <laughs> Third frame, so now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. Fourth frame, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. <clears throat> From happy and content to being ruined because, oh, it's not quite, well, wouldn't it be nice if? <clears throat> or you're trying to do metta, sometimes not, not here at the forest refuge, but often people can be, you know, in sitting in a guided metta meditation and and uh, they think everybody around is just overflowing with loving kindness and there they are, their heart is just like a lump and just nothing. And I've had people come to me many times with one variation or another of, I just don't, can't get metta and I know why because um, I don't have it inside of me. I don't have metta. And I know why, because um, I wasn't loved when I was a child. Or I'm not lovable or capable of love. Just because you didn't get in touch with some metta, which can easily happen. <clears throat> or the phenomenon of Vipassana romance, the VR, somebody just kind of catches your eye and there you are off to the races and your whole world is about how you're gonna be with them and get to know them afterwards and have a relationship and marriage and kids and divorce and whatever. And you haven't said a word, you know. <clears throat> So, 
All of these thoughts uh, create problems, of course, when we believe them, when we take them to be true. And um, the Buddha had uh, a number of different strategies in working with thoughts that I'd like to share as part of this talk. First, I want to point out that obviously the most powerful way to, um, to work with them is to see them simply as thought. Just, oh, thinking. And you see, oh, this is a mental fabrication. And sometimes when you see that and you see through it, you see how empty they are. I, I forget if I mentioned it here. I, I love Joseph's, Joseph Goldstein's instruction saying, if you're bothered by your thoughts, uh, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. you know, makes it so much simpler. Then you don't have to be responsible or reactive. But sometimes even seeing that you're thinking, and I've gotten in recent times um, just a, a renewed appreciation, you can realize that you are creating a mental fabrication and still there's been um, an activation of a reaction inside. Even though you know it's completely made up, there's sadness or grief about something that happened last week or there's fear or worry about something that hasn't happened. And you know it. I know I'm making this story up. And then you still get caught. That, that can be really painful because you've used your trump card. Aha! Mindful. I see it. But the body is still reacting or maybe there's trauma that's, that's been carried around and gotten activated. And then it's very, very humbling. So mindfulness doesn't always work. Work, that is, unhook you from the papancha. So the Buddha understood this and uh, in one discourse, maybe some of you are familiar with, um, he gives some other <clears throat> strategies for working with thoughts. And I'd like to share some of these. And if you're familiar with it, just remind yourself to incorporate this in practice. This is the Vitaka Santana Sutta, Majima number 20, the Sutta for removal of distracting thoughts or the relaxation of thoughts. He says, um, there is a case where unskillful thoughts imbued with desire, aversion, or delusion arise in one while he or she is referring to or attending a particular theme. That is a thought that arises. <clears throat> he, he or she should then attend to another theme apart from that one, connected with what is skillful. While attending to this other theme or train of thought, 
<clears throat> skillful thought, um, then those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. And with their abandoning, the mind is righted within, settled, unified, and concentrated. And then there's a, an, um, an analogy. Just as a skilled carpenter, carpenter or his apprentice would use a small peg to knock out, drive out, and pull out a large one, in the same way, if unskillful thoughts arise while one is referring to a particular theme, one should attend to another theme connected with what is skillful. And then those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. And with their abandoning, the mind is steadied, righted within, settled, unified, and concentrated. So what does that mean? Mm, suppose you're having a, um, a thought of um, anger, of rage. And you can't just say, oh, rage, rage, or anger. It's still gotten you hooked. What might you attend to in its place? Anything that you can think of that might give you uh, a bit more space. <clears throat> I don't know if this is done here at the Forest Refuge, but anybody who would like to offer an alternative when there's anger? Gratitude is, is good. Yes, excellent. Anything else? Remember a pleasant experience or a happy moment. Say again. Remember a pleasant experience. Uh-huh. Remember a pleasant experience. Yes, like gratitude. Any other? Metta. Sure, loving kindness. Generosity, any of those that open the heart. And particularly with anger, loving kindness is an antidote. But any of those others, gratitude and remembering something that, that opens your heart or generosity, yeah. Suppose you're having a lot of um, doubt. What might be a substitute, a skillful substitute thought? Anyone? Say again. Arouse faith, the antidote of doubt. Yeah, so maybe either thinking of the Buddha or someone who inspires you, the Dalai Lama, or somebody who believes in you. So you get the idea that you can substitute a particular train of thought with another more skillful train of thought. If there's wanting in the mind, a, a classical antidote is reflecting on impermanence. Or if there's um, restlessness or worry, then uh, perhaps remembering to be here in the present moment or all the times that you've been able to uh, meet the moment when it comes. So that's the first strategy. And it's really skillful to say, okay, enough of, 
of this one, I'm going to bring about a wholesome theme. But then he continues and, and says, uh, he realizes that might not always work. So he says, if those unskillful thoughts still arise while attending to this other theme, connected with what is skillful, one should scrutinize the drawback of those thoughts. Truly, these thoughts of mine are unskillful. They result in stress. And as one is scrutinizing the drawbacks of those thoughts, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. <clears throat> and then here's, here's the the analogy, just as a young woman or a man fond of adornment would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung from their neck. In the same way, unskillful thoughts still arise. One should realize, oh, these thoughts of mine are unskillful. They result in stress and as he's scrutinizing the drawbacks of those thoughts, they are abandoned and subside. So what does that mean? It's kind of the colloquial phrase, don't even go there. You know, if you can give that to yourself, don't go there. Oh, I've seen this so many times, I'm gonna go down that road and do I want to do it? Of course, sometimes you don't have control, but you still do it. Uh, but if you can sometimes frame a particular pattern of thought and you see it, it gives you a chance before you jump in the movie. As a, an example, one, one time I was sitting uh, uh, three, I was uh, part, part uh, two of a, three-month course many years ago. And uh, in those days, I was, a, I was a big football fan. I'm not so much of a football fan these days. I still, playoff time, I'll take a peek, you know, but it's just, my fascination is, is a lot less. But in those days, especially when San Francisco team had just an incredible uh, team, I was, completely a fanatic. And I made the mistake of looking at the schedule, the football schedule, before I came. And I can't tell you what I did two days ago, but when I see something in print, it sticks. And I knew the whole schedule. However, um, there I was, uh, sitting in the hall and sitting on the retreat and my whole body would kind of start gearing up Friday, Saturday, moving into Sunday until 1 p.m. they're playing in Atlanta for the next three hours and I'd be like this and, and imagining what the game was like and then kind of taking a little while as I would each week to kind of get over it and get over the game. And this went on for the first two weeks and I said, this is crazy, I'm not, how can I spend six weeks here just fantasizing about the football schedule? So I, I didn't know about this discourse then, but what I did was I just started noting as Friday was coming along, every time I'd imagine 
I'd note football thoughts, football thoughts, and just kind of put it into a frame like that. Oh, football thoughts. I said it a lot, but when I said it, it was like, I don't have to go down that road. Okay, I can just see I'm doing that. And it was, it was good. It was helpful. Actually, it became a big part of my practice, just noting football thoughts, but it was better than getting in the middle of the game. So, but he says, sometimes that still won't work. So he had a third strategy. If those unskillful thoughts still arise while scrutinizing the drawback of those thoughts, one should pay no mind and pay no attention to those thoughts as, as one is paying no mind and no attention, they are abandoned and subside. Um, just as a person with good eyes, not wanting to see forms that had come into range, would close their eyes or look away, in the same way, if those unskillful thoughts arise, one should pay no mind and no attention to them as those thought, to those thoughts. And then the mind begins to uh, calm down and become concentrated. So what does this mean? <clears throat> this is sometimes called the strategy of forgetfulness and inattention. This is the Buddha saying, don't pay attention, <clears throat> forget about it. But what he's saying is, pay attention to something else that's going on, which is, this is different from the first strategy. The first strategy is substituting a particular skillful theme, but this is just moving your attention to someplace else. So for instance, suppose you're having a, um, uh, a pain in your body and it's, it persists and it's, it's chronic. After a while, the mind can get really tired. The, the word is withered in, uh, in one of the teachings. The mind becomes tired, fatigued, and withered. And it's so easy to get spun out when you're having that kind of shrink, shrunken state. Pay attention to something else rather than that, uh, that painful uh, discomfort. Or open up to sounds, just listen to sounds. And this can be true both of physical or mental. Suppose you're spun out in some kind of a thought it's really great to just go to sounds. Of course, this room, there's not that many sounds, so uh, you'd probably be tuning into the sound of silence, but if you're outside uh, or if you're sitting in, at home, to just notice sounds, and it's a very spacious kind of uh, uh, an object, or to pay attention to something else, to some place in your body or come into your breath in a little more focused way. So you're not feeding that train of thought. Forgetfulness and inattention. And you don't have to be with what is most predominant. Fourth, he says, sometimes that doesn't work. If those unskillful thoughts still arise while paying no mind and no attention, one should attend to the relaxing of thought fabrication with regard to those thoughts. And here's the analogy. Just as the thought would occur to somebody walking quickly, 
why am I walking quickly? Why don't I walk slowly? And so they walk slowly. Then the thought occurs, why am I walking slowly? Why don't I stand? So they stand. Then the thought occurs, why am I standing? What if I sit? So they sit. And then the thought occurs, why am I sitting? Why don't I lie down? So they lie down. It's getting better and better. (laughs) In this way, giving up the grosser posture, one takes up the more refined one. And in the same way, if those unskillful thoughts still arise while paying no mind and no attention, they should attend to relaxing of the thought fabrication with regard to those thoughts and the mind becomes steadied and quieted. So what does that mean? There's a couple of different ways that this can work. One is very obviously chill out, just relax. You can get so caught up by your thoughts, just relax, take a break, maybe have a cup of tea, maybe go for a walk, uh, maybe take a bath. My, my instruction of last resort used to be, when all else fails, take a bath, to just kind of change the energy. And that can be really skillful. <clears throat> of course, you don't want to take three baths a day and just kind of, okay, I'll just lay back. But, but when you're, as an antidote to getting wound up, Another way of interpreting this, relaxing, stilling the thought formations is um, seeing where these thoughts come from. You know, what triggered the thought? Or um, mm, just seeing the mind state out of which those thoughts are arising. Oh, I'm feeling... um, anxious now or cranky. This is the mood that's going on and going right into the feeling without the story. So again, coming to the the source and not getting caught in the story or just relaxing. But he says, it still might not work. So he gives in this discourse one last strategy. If those unskillful thoughts still arise while attending to the relaxing of thought fabrication, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with one's awareness. Hmm. The Buddha was a warrior. He's from the warrior caste. Kshatriya caste, and there's some warrior-like images. As, as one is beating down, constraining, and crushing the mind with his awareness, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. Just as a strong man seizing a weaker man by the head or the throat or the shoulders would beat him down, constrain him, crush and crush him, so one can beat down and constrain and crush the mind with awareness. Wow. What does that mean? I say this with some caution. Because as long as there's really aversion, you're just feeding things. But if you 
can be very clear, tough love as sometimes saying in parenting and just saying enough. Just like a mother would grab a child running out into the street and saying no with a, with a firmness, it can have its value if you say it with loving kindness underneath. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever just said to yourself enough already and been able to do it with a kindness that is rooting for you? How many people have experienced that? Yeah, yeah. so you know, it's gotta be done with love. Okay, so there's five different strategies that the Buddha gives. And that's not the end of the talk. <clears throat> What's the teaching here? <clears throat> I hope you get that the Buddha is acknowledging and um, offering the truth that there's no one right way. There's many ways to relate to this mind. There's many skillful means that one can employ. And that's one of the benefits of having done a fair amount of practices, most everybody here, that you kind of see there, oh, I've got a few different tools in the toolkit. And when the thought comes, am I doing it right? Don't get caught into giving yourself a report card. What's the right thing to do? There's so many different ways. You come to, uh, to a retreat, say at Spirit Rock or IMS, where there's a team of teachers and you have your interviews with various teachers, you know, and you can go in sometimes and, uh, and, and present your situation and the, the teacher gives you a response and you, can often walk away saying, gee, they knew just what to say. Sometimes you don't, oh, that was. But often it's, oh, right on. And you could have gone to a different teacher who would have said something completely different. And you might have also said, oh, gee, they knew just what to say. So many different ways. Jack Cornfield has a great book called, uh, now it's called Living Dharma. It used to be called Living Buddhist Masters, but uh, most of them are no longer with us. So it's called Living Dharma. And it's 12 different uh, Thai and Burmese masters with their style of Vipassana practice. Many of them saying, this is the real way to do it. Not everybody, some of them saying, this is my way to do it. But, uh, but some of these masters saying, this is how it's really done. And it's great to read one after another. You see, you kind of get the idea when there they are juxtaposed with each other. Oh, there's so many ways to do this. <clears throat> so, with all of this, how do you know 
what the right answer is. Who do you trust? Who do you turn to? And perhaps you're getting the idea. Ultimately, you have to go inside and see what's true for me. This is, uh, again, from the Buddha, the wonderful Kalama Sutta, where the Kalamas, I'm sure most of you know this, this is the, the, the discourse that really hooked me, when the Kalamas had all these, these masters, these teachers coming through their town, that, and each one saying the truth, and then saying that they had the truth, and the Buddha comes and says, here, I'm going to share with you the Dharma, the truth. And they say, how do we know who to believe? It's so confusing. Everybody says that they've got the truth. And he says, um, it's indeed fitting to doubt, Kalamas. You should decide not by what you've heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher, but when you would know Kalamas for yourselves, these things are unhealthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken, inclined toward harm and suffering, then you should reject them. And when you know for yourselves, these things are healthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken, inclined toward welfare and happiness, then having come to them, you should stay with them. To know for yourself, which means to really take a look, observe, investigate your own experience and see for yourself. You listen to yourself most of the time anyway when you are caught up in the spin cycle. Why not learn to listen to yourself and get in touch with all the wisdom that's in there? And it is in there. I love the uh, image of uh, Mila Repa, the great Tibetan yogi, <clears throat> the, the really hardcore practitioner, um, and you can always tell it's Milarepa in the Tonkas, Tibetan Tonkas, because he has his hand to his ear. And that's Milarepa. And he's listening to the 100,000 Dharma songs. And I love that image, that metaphor, saying, listen, listen deeply inside. Listen to the song of the Dharma as it's as it's calling you, listen to, your, to the truth that's right inside. <clears throat> How to listen to that? How to hear it? Now, I also want to say, by the way, that it's good to use guidance of teachers. Um, and so I'm not saying, you know, don't pay any attention when you come into an interview and just, you know, good luck on your own. There might be something there in, in, the, in the discussion. And just 
see what's offered, you know, if there is something, some suggestion, but then see for yourself if it rings true for you. See, check it out, experiment. Don't take the teacher's word for it, but, but do try it and see for yourself. <clears throat> so ultimately, this comes down to really learning to uh, trust one's deepest experience. Now, trusting yourself can be a frightening proposition sometimes because we can steer each other, we steer ourselves in the wrong place, you know. And when I first got into this, you know, oh my God, trusting myself, you know, I, I don't trust myself around anything. How can I trust myself to be the wise teacher inside? But this is not, as the Buddha said, not acquiescing to views that you prefer, but trusting that the awareness can meet the moment. There's something beyond the thinking or figuring out mind. <clears throat> figuring out, I've said this to a few people in, in interviews, one of my main offerings, if you can get this, don't try to figure it out. Because figuring out is almost always a contraction of mind. There's a, a, a great line in uh, the Third Zen Patriarch, verses on the faith mind, Third Zen Patriarch, the one that starts out, uh, uh, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. There's this one line that says, Stop talking and thinking, and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Stop talking and thinking, and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. That's often how it works, isn't it? When you stop spinning your, your wheels, and all of a sudden, something becomes clear and obvious. And it's a different kind of a, a feeling than thinking through, I'm gonna get this answer if it kills me. But actually, when you let go of knowing, there's enough space created for the wisdom to shine through. Like uh, Krishnamurti's wonderful book, Freedom from the Known. Or the, the great uh, Korean Zen master, Sung Sung, his main teaching, just keep, don't know, mind. And he would say in his thick Korean accent, you know, where did you come from? Don't know, you know. Where are you going? Don't know, you know. What's the right answer? Don't know. <laughs> and he'd say, I, 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 was, I was, had the good fortune to be around him. Uh, he's, he was quite a, quite a presence. He said, just keep this don't know mind. Then everything becomes clear when you're not trying to figure out. So there's a difference between analyzing and just allowing the wisdom to shine through and shine through all of the 
beliefs and limiting stories that you can so easily tell yourself because the answers are right inside. There's a, a, a story of Michelangelo, someone uh, was lavishing praise on him uh, for his skill in creating uh, his amazing masterpiece, David. And uh, Michelangelo brushes aside the compliment saying, the man was already in the stone. I merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen. Isn't that a great way to think of what's in here? You know, there's a Buddha or Kuan Yin right in there. You just have to uh, not get caught in the things that obscure her or him. And the Buddha saying, Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands, and so for them there is cultivation of the mind. To see that that's who you really are, and just needs often a bit of an invitation to come through. So, how can we get in touch with this natural wisdom and love that's right in there? I want to offer a few possibilities. One is to uh, get out of the way, as, as I said, and some of these strategies that the Buddha gives, just to be mindful and instead of figuring out, just come back to this moment and take a break, step off the, the hamster wheel of your mind and just know that things will sort themselves out eventually. I forget if I mentioned, if I read this, if I did. This is from, I don't think I did. This is from a yogi um, who was having a really hard time, this is a number of years ago, it was her first retreat. And she was just spinning her wheels and I kept on saying, you don't have to figure it out. But she didn't quite get it until towards the end of the retreat and then she got it and she wrote me this beautiful note that, I, that I've kept for all these years. She says, the one thing that is indelibly in my brain is finally getting, you don't have to figure it out. That would never have registered as an option before. Just today when I was doing walking meditation, struggling as my thoughts were going round and round, those words came into my mind. I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? 
And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. And the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. So that's one possibility as you are spinning your wheels, just come back to this moment and know that sooner or later, things will become clear. How many times has that happened in your life when you put down the, the analysis that you've been going around and around in your brain for such a long time and then at some point it just becomes obvious. Oh, that's what, that's what's needed. You know that feeling? It's precisely because you're not trying with a contracted mind to figure it out. So mindfulness is a refuge that helps you step off that wheel in the mind. Second, learning how to listen inside. We have so many thoughts coming through, right? Many of them come through with a finger wag. You better not blow it. Or a kind of agitation, oh my goodness, something terrible is going to happen, you better do this, or what should I do? Those thoughts are probably not the voice of wisdom. But then there are other thoughts that come through, like I said a moment ago, that you just know this is right. This feels right. Or this connects. And it's often kind, it's often supportive, it's often aligned. Just think of the good decisions you've made in your life. Pick one. How did you know, how did you know that it was the skillful way to go. How did you know? Any, any, there's lots of different cues. I'm just wondering again, how do you know when you're hearing the, the voice of wisdom or the, the ring of truth inside? Any cues that, that you can get in touch? What is it? There, okay, there's an ease. Where do you feel the ease? Just in the body, there's an ease. Yeah. Anything else? Hmm? Often, for me, a breath just spontaneously will come. So there's a an ease and an opening of the breath. Mm -hmm. There's lots. One is feeling it in your body. There's a, 
a relaxation maybe, an ease, an alignment, uh, a connection, um, just from that contraction, a kind of opening. And also in the tone in your mind. You know, it's no longer a scolding, anxious tone. There's something really supportive that says something along the lines of, this feels right, or maybe this doesn't feel right. And it might not be even what you want to hear. It might be, oh, do I really have to listen to that? But you sense the rightness of it. And this is a a really valuable thing to keep on checking out how you know when you're hearing the voice of wisdom and truth inside. To recognize it and begin to uh, to trust it. <clears throat> and you don't have enough information yet to know what it's what things are going to turn how things are going to turn out. But given the information that you have now, this seems like the next step. I was at a, a juncture in my life. Uh, for those people who are at a crossroads in their life, and I, I write about this in, in Awakening Joy, uh, I was, uh, this is in 1977, and I had been teaching school for uh, about 10 years in New York City. And I loved it most of the, for most of that time, but towards the end it was starting to get a little, I didn't have that same energy. Uh, any school teachers here, by the way? Mm. I bow to you. The most, I think, one of the most, if not the most important job and undervalued, underappreciated. And when you've got the energy, if you're into it, it's great. When you don't, it can get old very fast. And after 10 years, I didn't know if that was what I should be doing. But I, I was teaching in New York, but I was afraid to I didn't want to leave my job because it was, I had job security. I was making $17,000 a year, which in those days was a lot, you know. Well, what am I going to do? But I had fallen in love with the Dharma by then. I'd sat my first three-month retreat in 76. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go up to here, to IMS, and be on staff. That was a second option. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll um, move out to California, which I had gone to, and it was, it was very compelling. Or maybe now's the time to take my Asian experience and to, to really go for it. So I had these four options, and they all seemed very, you know, use good, viable, and I was afraid of blowing it, right? So I, I went round and round in my mind, what's the right thing to do? What, what am I supposed to do? I, I don't want to mess this up. And it was driving me crazy. Finally, uh, that's in, during the summer, I was out in, at Naropa in Boulder, and I decided to visit um, one of the wisest people I had met who lived in Denver, whose name was Reverend Miller. He was a psychic, $5 a reading. 
He wasn't in it for the money, right? And I'd gone to him a few times before and he was always right on. So I went to him and I said, uh, look, I, I have all of these options and I, and I don't want to make a mistake. You know, please tell me what I'm supposed to do. And uh, he said, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I thought, oh, maybe I blew my $5 even. But I will tell you one thing. I said, yeah. He said, it doesn't matter. And I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. <laughs> and he went on to say, he believed in spirit guides. That was his big thing. He said, if you're frozen in indecision and you're, you can't take the next step, your guides can't help you. But given the information that you have now, you take that very next step and life will support you and your guides will support you. And you might go take one option and realize, oh yeah, this feels just right. Or you might take that option and after a while say, no, this isn't the right one. Maybe I'll try the next, the other one or another one. Or you might start putting yourself in motion and something opens up that you had no idea would have been available. Because that's how life works. So he said, it doesn't really matter. Your life is going to unfold anyway. All you can do is get in touch with what the truth is for you right now and take the next step. <clears throat> Best $5 I ever spent. <laughs> so this is listening to, given the information, where your heart lands. And sometimes I'll, I'll take a sitting and I'm, I might have, you know, what is it, the metronome going this way, that way, this way, that way. And I won't try to figure it out. And I'll just sit maybe an hour, maybe more, and not try to think my way through, but just feel it through and feel, where does my heart land right now? And trust that. It's as good as anything to be present for the energy and enjoy it when there's that kind of openness and relief. So, um, so you don't have to figure anything out. You just need to keep on listening and in the context, of course, of sila, you don't want to be causing harm or suffering through your actions or decisions. It has to be in alignment with non-harming. But this is what life is about, to just take it as an adventure rather than something that you might fail or pass. It keeps on unfolding anyway, haven't you noticed? And when you are in touch with the truth, to let yourself really feel the connection that comes with that and to get more and more familiar. And I offer this 
as you're practicing here, that you can take your whole practice as an adventure, not as a pass-fail test, not as I'm going to see if I'm a really good yogi or not, but as this exploration, what is it, uh, Gandhi's title of his book, My Experiments with Truth. It can be just your experiment with truth and getting to know the truth in this moment, which is what we're doing here. Oh, now there's hearing, now there's breathing, now there's feeling this, this, this feeling, this emotion. Oh, now there's thinking. We're learning to be present in this moment, in each moment. And as we do, we more and more learn to be present for the wisdom that's right inside of us. It's there, it's been there all along. All we need to do is quiet down enough and make the magical journey from being lost in our head to connecting with the intuitive awareness, the citta, right in our heart-mind. And rather than analyzing or thinking or figuring to listen to the truth. And you said the, the Buddha's words, <clears throat> some of his final words, therefore be lamps unto yourselves be a refuge to yourselves. Betake yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for refuge in anyone besides yourselves. And those who either now or after I'm dead shall be a lamp unto themselves shall be take themselves to no external refuge, but holding fast to the truth as their lamp and holding fast to the truth, the Dharma as their refuge, shall not look to refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height, but they must be eager to learn. So be eager to Learn and wake up and let that skillful listening be your guide as you practice. So let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.